Stuart has talked tonight, too. Well, what I want to talk about tonight, it falls to my lot to speak about tonight, is the subject of uh, aversion, self-judgment really, as a subset of aversion. And that means actually uh, starting by talking about the first noble truth. So as you see, it's a serious, a serious topic. So it's good you got your little laugh in, because that's it. So self-judging, yeah, it's not everybody, but many, many people really suffer a great deal from it in our culture. And as I said, self-judging is just a form of aversion. And aversion is one of the habitual responses to unpleasant feeling tone, unpleasant experience, and it's all based in delusion. And maybe Sally or someone said the very famous quotation from the Dalai Lama about to, peep, to a Westerner talking about their self-judgment. He's saying, you know, you're just wrong. You're wrong. It's basically wrong, first, because we're believing there's a self, but that's a whole other talk. Um, but it's, it's wrong because aversion as a response to difficulty, as a response to unpleasant, is based in delusion. And the very movement of aversion in a moment in our mind increases and feeds delusion. So we, we respond by pulling back, keeps us from being able to recognize accurately what's going on. In that gap of disconnect, that's when there's rife space for papancha to flow, papancha, based on aversion, <laughs> and we just get further and further from what's really going on. So aversion's based in delusion, it feeds delusion, and it just keeps us more and more confused. The self-judgment is just taking that and turning it back on ourselves. Okay, so that's kind of the overview. So to start by talking about the first noble truth, truth of dukkha, right, which I personally find fascinating, really quite profound, like it's a whole at least one lifetime's worth of exploration, and uh, really quite subtle and freeing. You know, as the Buddha talked about, the first noble truth, dukkha, is to be understood not to be changed, not to be gotten rid of, not to be avoided, to be understood. And so really, on one level, the source of a great deal of our confusion and suffering in life, and I'm not going to translate dukkha as suffering, I'm using suffering more specifically, is in not understanding the way things are. Dukkha, the way things are. So I just want to talk a little bit about that first. 
Yeah, I'm sure you're all familiar with dukkha and the various translations. One of the most common and kind of easiest being suffering, but not such a helpful one, really. But the kind of shorthand for Buddhism is life is suffering, right? That's the first noble truth. Now, at least for native English speakers, I don't know how the, what the intonations, the connotations would be if English isn't your native language. But for native English speakers, if you hear life is suffering, what, you know, what, <laughs> what kind of mood, you know, what kind of uh, connotations come from that? It's not really inspiring, is it? It doesn't really feel onward leading. And it kind of, it, it, um, as, as Utejaniya says, that when we, when we think of the first noble truth that way, it's almost impossible for a sense of aversion not to come along with it. Life is suffering, you know, there's already that tinge of aversion. But the first noble truth is not meant to be something that brings out aversion. When we understand it, it actually frees us from aversion, confusion, and greed. We understand it. So just to talk a bit about the, um, the definition, you know, in his, in his book on the Satipatthana, Bhikkhu Analayo, it's really a great book if you haven't read it. He just brings in so many different um, angles, so many different sources. So he's talking about uh, the Pali etymology, two possible readings and mean in interpretations of the word dukkha. And he, one of them is the du part means difficulty, and the ka part could be standing to mean the whole of an axle. You know, in an ox cart, there's a wheel and a hole in the wheel and the axle, that pole goes through it. And so from based on that interpretation, dukkha means like the, the hole just doesn't really fit the axle. And so it kind of grinds around with difficulty. It's just kind of this, it just doesn't really work so well. <laughs> that I can relate to more as dukkha as an expression of our life. Another one, do again, means difficulty. And the ka could come from uh, another um, root, sta, which would mean standing. So in this case, dukkha would mean standing with difficulty or standing badly. So again, uneasiness, uncomfortableness. And I find personally this much more to the point than suffering. So as Bhikkhu Bodhi then goes to say, he describes dukkha as the basic unsatisfactoriness running through our lives. That's not saying everything's horrible. It's not saying everything's negative. It's saying there's a kind of a basic unsatisfactoriness that runs through our lives. And are a part of what opens up in our practice on and off retreat is that that willingness of of the mindful attention the receptive awareness that stops trying to block that perception that stops trying to fix that perception i think of my mother who has difficulty always has had being with unhappiness with difficulty with things not working as you know just afraid of it pushes it down and so 
for some reason one time I was trying to explain to her what dukkha meant, which I don't know why we were even in that conversation, but I was trying to explain it and she goes, I'm not suffering. I don't have uneasiness running through my life. Everything's great. You know? So that, that level. And then when someone's holding that, it's like, don't tell me. Basic unsuffering running through my life. Did I come here to hear that? I don't think so. I came here to be more at ease, more loving, more happy. That's why, to get to self-judgment, when your practice isn't going the way you think it should, when it's opening up to sometimes a basic niggling uneasiness, sometimes much more obvious, we think something's wrong, right? Something's wrong when it's more difficult and unpleasant. That's our basic not understanding the first noble truth. So then, as the Buddha talked about the three aspects, I don't want to go into them in detail, but just to give some flavors of what we mean, there's dukkha dukkha, which is really what you would call basic suffering, pain, old age, disease, death, you know, and that no one gets out without it, right? Basic suffering, sickness, not being together with what is loved, having to be together with what is not loved, not getting what you want. I mean, these are the definitions in the suttas. Dukkha dukkha. Another aspect is that of change, that no matter how wonderful or how difficult something is, it's constantly changing. That basically there's an unreliability, an insecurity in that nothing can be held to or relied on for lasting satisfaction or lasting suffering for that matter. Nothing can be relied on for lasting anything. And this, when we're not completely at ease with that, definitely gives this little undercurrent of just not quite, you know, I just want to be settled. It's just not quite easy. And the third is called Sankara Dukkha, which one way uh, is described as a kind of perpetual incompleteness or insubstantiality or kind of the There's different ways of describing it. One way is kind of the, um, just the ongoing nature of everything. You have to get up and drag yourself out of bed and go pee, and then you have to wash, and then you have to dress, and then you have to eat, and then you have to go pee, and then you have to wash, and then you have to, you know, and it just goes on and on and on. So finally, why do we love to go to bed at night if you can sleep? Thank you. God, it's over. It's over. That's why they say, Joseph says that Venindraji used to say that sleep is the, is the whirling's nibbana. You know, it's just check out. So I'm joking, but that doesn't have to be accompanied with aversion, though, what I just described. The way I said it definitely had a tinge, but it doesn't have to be accompanied with aversion. But, and this is what's so interesting, we still tend to think of all of this as insecurity, difficult, unpleasant, nothing can be relied on. But that's not so. The beautiful is included within dukkha, within the first noble truth. It's just that it can't be relied on because there's change. In fact, there's one sutta where uh, Sariputta, the Buddha's chief disciple, and the Buddha are talking. 
And the Buddha's kind of quizzing Sariputta on aspects of his enlightenment, his awakening. Anyway, at one point, um, the Buddha rephrases something Sariputta said, and he rephrased it in this and said, another way of saying that, Sariputta, is that whatever is felt, felt being Vedna, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, whatever is felt is included within dukkha, is included within this first noble truth. So the first noble truth isn't about everything's grim and unpleasant. It's about there's pleasant, there's unpleasant, there's neutral in constant, ongoing, unending succession. And it can't be relied on. It's insubstantial. And that is dukkha. So you see why to just have a sense of aversion right away isn't really accurate. But this is not always so easy for us to understand. The, the Buddha talked about, again in relationship to this, as with many other things as well, he talks about a way of uh, how we can come to understand this three aspects of experience in relationship to this, that all feeling is included within dukkha, in relationship to many other aspects of our experience. And he talks about it as, as really seeing and understanding for ourselves the gratification, the danger, and the escape in these things. So he says, and this is the Buddha talking, he said, before his enlightenment, when I was still a bodhisattva, it occurred to me, what is the gratification in this world? What is the danger in this world? And what is the escape from this? And he said, then it occurred to me, whatever pleasure and joy there is in this world, this is the gratification. And this is very, very important for us to see. Because if we don't really let it in, sure, there is gratification. There is pleasure and joy. If we're trying to just pretend it's all neutral, it's pretend it's, we think it's all empty, nothing's giving me pleasure, then we're not recognizing accurately. you know. And as long as we're not recognizing accurately, we're not going to be able to see the danger and see the escape. We stay lost. So sure, there's gratification. There's pleasant, there's joy, there's love, there's beauty, all of this. That the world is impermanent, bound up with suffering, subject to change, this is the danger in the world. So I was saying this in insecurity, unreliability. And the abandoning of craving and lust for the world, this is the escape from the world. You hear they said the, the abandoning of craving and lust is the escape from the world. Not hating the world, not trying to avoid seeing that there's beauty, not trying to, you know, avoid being with the unpleasant, just seeing. Abandoning the craving and lust is the escape. So this is really how we need to look to see accurately our experience and to allow wisdom to arise that does free our heart and mind from confusion, from suffering. So here I just had to lay that up, but now I want to go and particularly talk about aversion in terms of aversion arising in relationship to unpleasant. But as you see, the first noble truth of dukkha isn't only about aversion. But what he's saying is there's pleasant, there's unpleasant, there's neutral. And that's just how it is. There's nothing wrong or bad 
about unpleasant experience, physical and mental experience arise. It's going to happen. It doesn't mean that there's something deeply, deeply wrong with you. When you have pain, when you're sick, when things don't happen the way you want them to, when you can't control your experience, it means, hey, welcome to the human race. But that's not really, when we're not looking carefully, that's not the way the habit of our mind and heart responds. So just to begin to explore on a very simple moment-to-moment basis, and then we can spread it out. In a moment, we've talked about this, right? The six sense doors, the sense consciousness, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, thoughts, emotions, experience with pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, that the mind feels it that way. We've talked about that. And just as when there's pleasant, the habit of the mind when there's not mindfulness just, just leans into it little bit of craving, hardening into grasping, hardening into becoming, wanting more. So with aversion, similarly based on, you could say, on the delusion, I mean, I'm saying these words, it's not in the moment, but the delusion is like, this shouldn't be happening, and somehow by pushing it away, I can either keep myself separate from it, not feel it, or just continue on with the pretense that it's not happening at all, one of those. But in the moment, the kind of the mental reflex to something unpleasant. Just take an unpleasant sound. Let's not take anything too, you know, really deeply complicated. The, the momentary reflex in the mind is to just, the attention just tends to just pull back a little bit, just, you know, very mild. If there's a mindfulness and you notice it, unpleasant sound pulls back, then the attention can go right to the unpleasant, back to the sound, and that was just a little blip, doesn't go anywhere. You just see that right? But say there's that pulling back, there's not much mindfulness, don't really know it. In that moment, like it's like a little gap, right? What comes into that little gap? What could it be? Oh, that sound, that shouldn't be happening. Why is that so loud? That's really going through my whole body, the papancha, the wazoo. And what was just a little moment of pulling back can just blossom into aversion immediately, really quickly. Unseen, it just kind of cycles on itself, doesn't, doesn't it? Just feeds on and on and on and on. So we have millions of examples of that, but I want to stay on the momentary thing for a moment. What's interesting about, of course, we don't always notice on this level. It takes a certain, a certain calmness of mind at the moment. And it's also helpful if the, the sense impingement isn't like something that hugely triggers our personality stuff, right? But to notice whenever we recognize that we're in some form of aversion, aversion, fear, anger, disappointment, rejection, you know, the whole frustration, that it started in the moment with an unpleasant sense experience that's occurring now. So for example, fear. The content of fear may be about all these horrible things that might happen in the future. What triggered, that's aversion playing itself out into papancha. What triggers that moment of aversion that goes into fear is something unpleasant arising now. It may be uh, a memory of a past difficult thing and then what if that happens in the future? It could be a little 
twinge, you know, in your spine. I mean, you can't even call it pain. You can barely call it sensation, but it's just mildly, barely unpleasant, you know. Even intense fear or intense grief over memories of something that happened 10 years, and really strong grief, starts by the memory occurring now, a mental experience happening now. And to me, I'm emphasizing that because to me, that has been enormously helpful in terms of giving me a way to uh, trust to bring my mindfulness into the present moment experience. Sure, sometimes it's overwhelming, and we'll get to that. But before it's overwhelming, or when it's just kind of, what's all this unpleasant, this aversion, what's going on? Sometimes I'll just sit there a minute, widen my attention, go, what's going on right now? And I'll see, oh, my stomach feels a little unpleasant. Or I'll sit there and suddenly, oh, I just had this really unpleasant memory. It kind of floated through and I didn't really notice it, you know? And so seeing the cause and effect, the cause and effect, it really breaks down the sense of the solidity the sense of taking it so personal, and the sense of, of inevitability and unworkability about the aversion. It's just a habit of mind in response to unpleasant. And when we have that, that courage and that willingness of mindfulness to know, okay, unpleasant is like this. I mean, it's built into us from our, most of our whole experience is unpleasant, get the heck out of here. You know, so it can be scary. That's why we have to really have the mindfulness. It's not our natural, for most of us anyway, I can't speak for everyone, but it's not our natural tendency. Unpleasant awareness just flows into it without a bubble. But sometimes it happens, doesn't it? And isn't that so peaceful? And then you can't even tell if it's unpleasant after a while. And there's no aversion. And you think, I don't know what you think. You can think all kinds of things. You can think anything. But it's a sense of, wow, this is possible. It's another way of being. That's the moment of understanding the first noble truth. Unpleasant's like this. Pleasant's like this. Neutral is like this. So when the, the mindfulness comes back and meets the experience, the sense contact, there's again a possibility of wisdom, just knowing it for what it is. Oh, unpleasant sound. When the mindfulness doesn't meet it or we don't even recognize it, then the sense of uh, delusion, confusion, comes in with the thoughts, that sound in the hall, I can't believe it, how could they bring it? And it just spins and spins, and the confusion and the not knowing what's happening gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Until we're relating with great fear, great self-hatred or aversion to something that basically we've completely made up. It isn't even happening. But there was just some moment of unpleasant. A simple example that someone told me years ago, they were sitting, it was in this hall, but kind of a different setup and some years ago. And they kept, and their concentration was good and deep and they were really present. And then they kept hearing this noise. They thought, you know, some kind of steady little noise, the kind that just drives you crazy in the meditation hall. Because why? First, it's a little unpleasant. And second, it shouldn't be happening, right? And so we don't just notice unpleasant sound, the tightness in the body, which is also unpleasant. Maybe there's not noticing that, but there's a thought. It shouldn't be happening. And that moment of papancha isn't seen as a moment of papancha. It's taken as an accurate description 
of experience, isn't it? This shouldn't be happening. The next, this is messing up my concentration. The next, I need to do so. And, and we're absolutely believing each of these thoughts, right? So the trick is how soon do we notice what's happening? Thank God, three thoughts were good. When Sally was talking about yogi mind last night, three days, you know, we haven't noticed. Anyway, this person said this went on and on, sitting after sitting, and they couldn't. They were going crazy. Then finally they had a sitting where the sound was still happening, but they just noticed it. The mind didn't get reactive. They just kept on being with their breath, their body, whatever is happening, and they saw, oh, wow. It's really true what Ajahn Chah says. The sound doesn't disturb us. It's we who go out and disturb the sound. It's just happening. It's just happening. The only thing disturbing my meditation was my attachment to the mind, to the thoughts. So really noticing this, again, gives us the, the inspiration, the trust, really. Okay, let me just try and meet what's happening in this moment. Self-judgment is really when there's a moment or longer of unpleasantness, of difficulty, and the way the, the way the papancha goes, the way the thoughts go, is as that aversion grows into anger or hatred, the story turns around and comes back on ourself. Now, for, for each one of us who experiences some form of worthlessness or self-judgment or I'm not good enough or whatever, we each, in terms of our Sakaya Ditti, our personality and our personal history, it's true that we will each have particular story, particular events in our past, in our way past, usually it starts from very young age to more recent past, that could um, explain the particular flavor of our particular personality's self-hatred or worthlessness. And certainly that can be very useful to know. And sometimes as you begin to be able to just touch the feeling, self-hatred feels awful too. Oh, okay, unpleasantness feels like this. If we can drop the story and just feel it, oh, coming into being present, bearing witness, showing up for ourselves, for our own experience. That's the expression of mindfulness, the expression of kindness, expression of metta. Mindfulness and kindness or metta-compassion are really the two tools that bring us out of this habit and into the present moment. So as we're exploring this here in retreat in our life, if you're not already familiar, and many of us are, with your particular story and the particular thought patterns that come in your life in response to unpleasant experience, so when we get to know that, that can be very helpful. Sometimes people then choose to explore it further, the, the storyline, the past history through therapy and how it shows up in thoughts and reactions to situations now. And I found that very helpful. And then in terms of the freedom of understanding of how the mind works in, in uh, awareness, at some point, I know the story already. I really don't need to keep rehashing it. So that when I'm sitting or in daily life, it doesn't matter. And I start to notice I'm also very familiar with what self-judging or self-hatred feels like. There's like a tone in my body. And it's not a pleasant tone. <laughs> then there's certain quality that the thoughts begin to take. 
And it really isn't so subtle once we start tuning in. It really isn't like, you know, sneakish, like, hmm, you really could have done that a little better, couldn't you? Hmm, I think that person really doesn't like me. Or I'm just, I just feel as like I'm creeping around like this even if I'm alone in the house. You just notice that. To sit down and go, well, that's because when my mother, and then, and then, and then, I don't need to know that. I know that. That's enough. Right now, I know what it feels. Oh, it feels like this. It's simply unpleasant physical, mental experience. feels like this. Met with mindfulness. Met with compassion. There's nothing to fix. There's nothing you need to change. Because it isn't you. It isn't me. It's just thoughts and unpleasant feelings and sensations. It's just a mental state, as we say. That's not a put-down. When I suddenly am caught in something more in my life and suddenly go, oh, this is just a mental state. That's like a huge freedom. Because I know, even though it feels so gripping, and isn't that one of the things about difficult and unpleasant mental states, even though we know it feels like this is how it's going to be forever, right? This is it. All that other stuff came and went, but this one, <laughs> right, is it. Four more weeks? I don't think so. This is the root of who I am, right? And what's go, oh, this is a mental state. Because somehow just being able to have awareness big enough to name that, like, oh, actually, the awareness, the attention, the energy relaxes into the experience of the mental state when I recognize it like that, without resistance, without so much identification, without a problem. Oh, primal terror feels like this. (laughs) Serious. When I get to primal terror, I'm really happy because all that craziness my mind has been doing since I was two to avoid feeling it, I don't need to do that anymore. Oh, primal terror is like this. It's a huge relief. Because who told us we only have pleasant mental states? Did you think that the more you sat, you'd only have pleasant? They're important. Wholesome is important. The arhat maybe only has wholesome mental states. But until we're arhats, if we hate every unwholesome mental state, if we take it as a proof of what we always knew, that we're useless and a failure, Well, it just keeps on spinning, doesn't it? It just keeps on spinning. So, oh my, (laughs) I have so much more to say. So, what is it then that once aversion comes in, whether it's fear or anger, self-judgment, what feeds it? I've said how mindfulness and just meeting it as it is helps it to drop, but what feeds it? One thing Sally talked about last night in wise attention, there's also unwise attention. And the Buddha said, and I find this very helpful, unwise attention to the repugnance of an unpleasant object. Repugnance means it's it's repellent to us. The the aspect of the unpleasant experience that just feels yucky. Unwise attention to that is what feeds aversion and really keeps it spinning. So Utejaniya always gives a very concrete example. If you're really angry with somebody, just they've just done something, you're really angry. If you keep looking at them, what does that do to the anger? 
What effect does that have on the anger? Yeah? And don't they start? And and that dosa, dosa is the word in Pali for all the different qualities of aversion. I actually want to use dosa because, you know, there's frustration and anger and fear and resistance. But dosa covers all of it. And I like to use dosa because it takes me out in myself of the minuteness of the story. And I'm looking at the person, and oh, they did this to me, and the anger's getting bigger. And then dosa in the mind distorts perception. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed if you're really angry with someone, the more you look at them, they kind of start to look uglier? <laughs> it does that, you know? Or if something is like, you know, some, there's some food and you're really feeling sick, you really feel nauseated, and the food in front of you, does it look attractive? Does it look good? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> if you've ever had um, food poisoning or something you ate, you know what it is. You just know what it is. You can't, I can't go near that food, you know, for 15 years. It doesn't <laughs> look attractive. <laughs> Dosa distorts. And so then it just keeps going. We just keep looking at it, looking at it, looking at it. You know how if you have a little, a little broken tooth, it doesn't even hurt, but it's just rough. Can you keep your tongue away from that? <laughs> your other teeth, they're fine. Do you notice them? Which is, oh, 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 right? And then it's unpleasant, and then we get more unpleasant, and it just spins and spins and spins. And then you're on edge, and so the next unpleasant thing that enters your line of perception, some, some poor person happens to walk a little too close, and the mind's like, ugh, you know? What did they do? Nothing, but just aversion feeding on itself. And if you're inclined towards self-judgment, then it turns back on yourself. What's the matter with me? I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have had that aversion to that person. I'm so bad, and we don't see. That's just dosa in the mind again. So if I'm analyzing, oh, aversion to them, but no, it's to me. No, I really shouldn't be like this. Is because I was a child, and it, it just keeps it going. Oh, dosa in the mind feels like this. It takes the personality out of it. It takes a lot of the identification out of it. But the attention is able to really be there. Oh, dosa in the mind is like this. It's like this. The papancha doesn't have to take off so much. So one way aversion's fed is through this unwise attention to the unpleasant, you know, the, the aspect of the experience that we don't like, and we just can't leave it alone. Another one is just outright denying, consciously anyway, that this unpleasant or difficult thing is happening externally or internally. So I have a friend in Switzerland who, uh, where I teach and where she used to be a cook at the meditation center there. It's in the mountains, and the weather changes very quickly. You know, you get up in the morning, and it's a beautiful blue sky, and by noon clouds are coming over the mountains, and by the afternoon it's raining. And she came from a flat part of Switzerland. There are flat parts in Switzerland. And she comes from a flat part. And she said she loves lying out in the sun in the summer. And so she'd be lying in the garden, and then the clouds would start coming, and it's getting all dark. And she'd just say, no, this isn't happening. You know? <laughs> and we do that. When we have the idea we should be perfect, we should be loving, we shouldn't go, no, I don't feel angry. Has anyone ever done that? Oh, no, I'm not. This isn't, I'm not feeling aversion to this. This pain in my back, I'm just equanimous with this. 
You know? We're walking, we're bored, people are just a little too close. So, well, I'm just equanimous with this. This is just a little, you know, and we fool ourselves until suddenly, you know, it breaks out somewhere. Go, oh, gee, I seem a little, a little over-aversive to this little thing. What could have been going on? So outright denial, and we don't notice it till suddenly it shoots up really strongly. Or another one is just some little subtle background unpleasantness. It could be just a mood of very subtle tiredness or discontent or very subtle. We hardly notice it, but it's going on. And it can slowly, slowly, in not noticing what's happening, the aversion each time it, it kind of feeds on itself. For instance, in, in my mind and body, when I'm really tired, and at night I'm almost always really tired, my body is uncomfortable, it hurts a little, and I would get aversive. And I didn't really learn this until the last few years. But thank God I finally learned it. But at night I would, used to, get a little cranky once in a while. <laughs> and if I was like going, doing something with my family, or just much more likely to get cranky. Even now, we have like teacher meetings, and I always say, you know, we should have them in the afternoon. It's really a lot better for everybody because I just get cranky and impatient. But I notice it, you know, much more. And I see that what it comes from is the uncomfortable, unpleasant feeling in my body and my not bringing awareness to it. So the mind tries to move away from the unpleasant. And in that comes aversion, and then it just kind of shoots out in whatever else unpleasant experience comes. When I just go, oh, body feels like this, unpleasant, painful. Well, it's really fine. It's really fine. And I, I don't feel that uncomfortableness, that negativity in myself that I used to feel when I got really tired. If I just, oh yeah, if I just remember to notice. So, and another form is resistance. Just that sense, and resistance can really fool us. Resistance can come with a really good story why we shouldn't do something. Take walking meditation, for example. You know, I'm just feeling so tired right now, and I really think it wouldn't be helpful to walk, you know? Or I just feel heavy, and I think sitting is better. Sitting is calmer. Walking is more gross, you know? I don't think I should do the walking. I mean, and resistance can just be a habit. Once you recognize it's a mental state, oh, resistance feels like this. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. You stand there, feel resistance, and start walking. Resistance gone, just a mental state. But when we don't notice it, again, because there's not the connection, there's that delusion. We're not with what's actually happening. And the, the one aversive thought, the next aversive thought, the next thought, and the whole thing spins and becomes really solid. So all of these forms of delusion that are increasing through aversion, through the not connecting, this is really how aversion increases, and when it's self-hatred, how we get lost in it by not knowing what's happening. So they're very, very deep, these habits of assessing our life, assessing our experience by virtue of how much is pleasant and how much is unpleasant. And somewhere deep down there, when it's unpleasant, it's so um, familiar to evaluate it as being wrong, as being bad. And that really our, 
our life, our journey is one of having more and more pleasant, more and more good things. And if that's how we think, then whenever unpleasant comes, though the Buddha described it so well in that sutta, the two darts, which I want to read a little more than usual of, because he describes the whole thing. So you know he says what we do, an unenlightened worldling. Puchajana, it's easier to say. What they do when they are, say they're shot, with, it's like you're shot with an arrow. There's a bodily unpleasant feeling. So that happens to everyone. An uninstructed worldling, what they do on being shot with an arrow is he worries and grieves, he laments, he beats his breast, he weeps and is distraught. Thus he experiences two kinds of unpleasant feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. You get the drift. Self-hatred is exactly that. Self-judgment is exactly that. Something unpleasant happens, and we turn around, and it really is. Sometimes it feels like I'm stabbing myself in the heart. You're so bad. You're so wrong. You're so, no, this shouldn't be happening. Just complete second dart. Then he goes on. Having been touched by that painful feeling, he resists it and resents it, right? Pleasant physical or mental. So say you're feeling angry. Say you've had good concentration, whatever that means to you, and it's gone. Say you had really calm day sitting, and now you can't string two breaths together, and you really hate it. So that's unpleasant feeling. We resist it. We resent it. And then in one who so resists and resents that painful feeling, an underlying tendency of resistance, just a habit of resistance, comes to underlie the mind. It becomes a habit. Self-hatred is just that habit. Something unpleasant happens, it's all my fault. And then under the impact of that painful feeling of that resistance, he proceeds to enjoy sensual happiness. Why? As I said this the other night, an untaught whirling knows of no other escape from painful feelings except the enjoyment of sensual happiness. So you, something's unpleasant, you're blaming yourself, you're loathing yourself, you're sure you've done wrong, so what do you do? You run into the refrigerator at midnight when you think no one will be there and eat a handful of figs, you know, just something pleasant. No, I don't know that anyone did that. I made that up, okay? <laughs> but it has been known to happen. Or, you know, you go running in and have tea or you eat three helpings of something. But we know where that goes, don't we? Because then your stomach hurts. Or then you have the feeling, ah, oh, I was trying to take eight precepts and now I ate it three. And then we go back to it's unpleasant and you beat and you beat and then you know no other way out except the enjoyment of sensual happiness. So you go and read something. And then you go, oh, I read and you beat and you beat. You get it? <laughs> this, is, this is the weariness with samsara. But this is broken if we simply have the courage and the willingness to look. You don't have to fix it, but just to have that steadiness of mindfulness, that kindness to just come in and notice what is happening. If the pain, if the difficulty is unacceptable, we often get these sense uh, like an idealization of how it's supposed to be. And we do this in ourselves. We do it in the world. We definitely do it in meditation practice. This sense of that not really getting that painful stuff happens. Even though we get it on the intellectual level, 
on the deep cellular level, when you start beating yourself up, going into hatred because, I don't know, it can be something so simple as your foot hurts or you ate too much or craving had the audacity to arise in your mind even after you've been so concentrated, you know? Or I really saw through that pattern. I really saw through it. I understood it. Finished, right? (laughs) That one's not coming back again. And it comes back. Of course it comes back. (laughs) What do you think? So we get into this sense of idealization. And that's another place. That feeds selective perception. So we only see what we think it should be. And that keeps feeding that, you know, running and resisting the unpleasant and going for the pleasant. The selective perception is really a fascinating thing. Sally talked a little bit about it the other night, this idealization. And notice, sometimes it's helpful to actually bring into your mind in words what, what views you're holding of what the ideal you should be like. I should never. If you really say it, Hopefully you can realize how ridiculous it is. Because when we have these idealizations, they're really up there. I should never be angry again. I'm a practicing Buddhist. I only feel metta to other people. I don't feel angry. If I feel angry, it's because I'm bad, I'm wrong, so I don't, you know, I shouldn't feel it. And of course, that's dosa in the mind. So a very example I use a lot, but on a retreat I was teaching with a friend in California years ago, about 50 people on this retreat. And many of them were brand new yogis. It was their first retreat. It was like a five-day retreat. And so we were like this, giving the instructions and um, about the, you know, how to sit. And you can sit you know, on a bench, on a zafu, on a chair. And it's about the pot, you know, everything we say to you. And about the fifth day, a woman, a middle-aged woman, came to me. And she said, in the interview, she said, I have just been in nothing but excruciating pain at every single sitting. I just can't sit cross-legged. I've never done it in my life. I'm a 50-year-old woman, but sitting cross-legged, all I'm doing is filled with hatred, anger, and aversion, fighting the pain, you know? It's unbearable. And she said, and this went on, this was like the fifth day, and she said, and just either that morning or the night before, she said, I looked up and I said, I noticed for the first time, she noticed, Oh, Carol's sitting in a chair. Maybe it's okay to meditate sitting in a chair. It wasn't even the sense which we all do of knowing we can, but refusing to really do it because we know deep down the real stuff happens on the cushion. That, I know, I know, you all go through that. I went through it myself until you have to give up and accept reality as it is. But this wasn't even on that level. This was on the level of she had not noticed consciously that I was sitting in a chair. I'm sitting up there blabbing, you know, the whole day. And so the selective perception, so strong, this is how it's supposed to be, that we don't even let it in. It's a fascinating thing. This is why the steadiness, the continuity of mindfulness is essential. Not, as we said, you can't, the willingness to be continuous. Because the selective perception comes in when we kind of click on and click off. You know, we pay attention when we like it or when you don't like it, either one. But you pay attention at certain times, and then you don't notice when that isn't going on. You pay attention again at certain times. Like she would notice whenever she would see the people sitting cross-legged, she wouldn't notice me. 
or the other people in chairs. She would notice how painful it was, but the thought would never come into her conscious head, let me try another way, even though we were saying it. It sounds incredible when I say it, but this is what we all do. Self-hatred is a function of this, a function of this idealization, of this sense of perfection. Your practice is never good enough. What's it supposed to be like? I'm not with the breath enough. What would enough be? I'm not concentrated enough. The Buddha said one of the four things that drive people mad to think about it is the power of a concentrated mind. You're never going to be concentrated enough if your idealization is more, (laughs) no more. So this is when the dosa actually distorts what we perceive. We don't perceive accurately. And then our decisions aren't accurate. This is the Buddha. Brahmin, when one dwells with a mind obsessed and oppressed by ill will and does not understand as it really is the escape from arisen ill will, on that occasion one neither knows or sees as it really is one's own good or the good of others or the good of both. So not to hate ourselves, but just to notice when there's dosa in the mind and when it's taking the form of self-judgment. If you don't remember anything else I say tonight, remember this. When there's self-judgment in the mind and you're caught in it, you can't believe any thought you have. No thought you have can you believe. Any thought that has, you can't believe. Because it's all distorted by dosa. And so when you're trying from a place of self-hatred to make your practice better, what are you using for an assessing tool? (coughs) It's unreliable. At that point, though, you don't need to do anything except, oh, dosa's like this. Dosa in the mind is like this. This is the amazing tool of awareness just receiving what's happening, of mindfulness just meeting experience. A couple of quick ways. Mindfulness and compassion are really our allies here. They work together. Sometimes mindfulness is enough. Sometimes we need to consciously bring in the kindness, the compassion. So sometimes, when you realize you're caught in judging and aversion, it's enough to, it's mild enough that you can consciously bring in mindfulness to say, what's the sense contact that's kind of triggering this right now? And really come in there. One time I was in Burma on retreat and had to sit in my kuti, I just had to sit in my kuti and my little hut. And they decided, as they always do, to start a construction project just across the street, not even as far away as the first row of chairs there. But so that meant from 7.30 in the morning till 5.30 in the afternoon, they were doing some kind of electric sanding, you know, solid. And it was really that grating noise. And then they came in with another one that was on a different frequency and a different sound, and they would kind of go in tandem, you know. And I saw right then, you know, it starts. The whole thing starts. But I saw so clearly you know, I have no choice here. I either surrender into, die into the unpleasantness of this sound, or 
you know, it's going to be a bad scene. <laughs> and, and so knowing that and knowing we can, this is where we say, you know, awareness can be with anything. It was like, just relax and <laughs> And then when I take a breath and the other one would start off, <laughs> okay. And I could really see if I just let the attention, and it wasn't heavy, just be with it, relax into it. As soon as I'd let the attention move away, I can't believe it, you know, it's all over. So you just come back and you can watch that. So sometimes that's quite possible. That's with continuity and a light, a light but very committed touch with the awareness. Sometimes it's more with looking at the mental state with the unpleasantness. So example, uh, Tejaniya talks a lot about if you're sitting with a strong pain. Sometimes we'll say just be with the pain, be with the pain, notice how it breaks up and Sometimes if the mind's calm enough and the samadhi's strong enough, it really does, boom, just go into the sensation. It breaks up and there's no even sense of unpleasantness, no problem. There's no aversion. But you can't always do that. There has to be the right combination of factors, as you know, right? You all know you can't always do that. So other times you try it, but it's just not happening. And what is happening in the mind? Then it's much more useful don't pay so much attention to the physical pain. Actually bring your sati, your mindfulness and compassion to the aversion in the mind, to the tightness in the mind, the aversion in the mind, the self-hatred, whatever form it's taking. And that's the next arising object of awareness. It's not bad or wrong. We can be mindful of aversion. We can bring compassionate attention to the feeling of self-hatred. That doesn't make it feel good. That's idealization. Self-hatred is always going to feel like self-hatred. That's its nature. But the aversion to it can actually fall away. There's a, a sense this is actually how the habit begins to change with the two darts. The, the difficult, unpleasant pain or mental state is there. The habit is to say, oh, this is horrible. I should fix it. Or How can I? And that's just increasing dosa. That's dosa feeding dosa in the mind. When we go, oh, self-hatred, it feels awful. I hate myself, Ugh, is like this. That moment of mindfulness, of compassionate awareness is actually what's creating new karma. That's the moment of new karma. And that's not dosa. That's mindfulness. That's compassion. That's wholesomeness. That's actually what begins to change the pattern. So it's not bad that this difficult stuff comes up. It really isn't. How we can meet it in this moment is, the, is all there is. It's the whole place of practice. Can we meet it? Sometimes we can, with mindfulness, with compassion. Sometimes we can't. This is Ajahn Sumedho. If you're being very idealistic and you hate someone, then you think, I shouldn't hate anyone. Buddhists should have metta for all living beings. I should love everybody. I'm a good Buddhist, so I should like everybody. And all that comes from impractical idealism. That's not wisdom. So instead, try having metta for the aversion you feel, for the pettiness of the mind, for the jealousy, the envy. Metta means peacefully coexisting in the moment. 
with these experiences, not creating more problems, not making it difficult or creating problems out of the difficulties that arise in life within our minds and in our bodies. Metta, peaceful coexistence. Sometimes the energy of the self-hatred, the anger, is really big. And so the mindfulness has to be also really big and almost very gross. It's not always nice and tidy and anger is like this and self-hatred is like this. Sometimes the anger is just spewing, but you can still meet it with mindfulness. I have invented what I call stomping meditation. One time I was so angry at something someone had said or done outside of the retreat. And I went out and I was really with the anger and but I couldn't sit, the energy was so strong, so I was away from people, and I was really just stomping up and down, up and down, back and forth, you know. But feeling the body, feeling the energy of the anger just, you know, churning in my stomach, and seeing how that just fed the thoughts, and if I went into the story, how much that increased the physical experience of the anger. I learned so much about how anger and papancha fuel one another. And it was not at all a pretty, subtle meditation. I was really out there, like, ah, 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 you know. But that's okay. Mindfulness can also be big. Compassion can take many forms. Hmm. I've noticed in myself, in and out of retreat, that the times when I feel most uh, disconnected, alienated, confused. I can't figure out what's going on, you know. And that may go on for however long it goes on. But it's when I notice, when I just sit down and go, what's happening? Always see that that sense of alienation, separation, confusion is arising because there's something happening right now in my experience that I'm basically trying to avoid, deny, repress. And as soon as I said, oh, it's this primal terror, this unpleasant memory, the pain in my body, the scleroderma coming back, whatever, the sense of, ooh, I can't believe I did that stupid thing. I said, oh, shame feels like this, right? In that moment, the connection, the sense of wholeness, the sense of aliveness again is back. And trying to hold ourselves separate We're shutting ourselves off to so much of life, our own life and the life of all beings around us. By actually finding that courage, that willingness to open into the unpleasant as well as the pleasant, as well as the neither, we're really opening into all the beauty and vibrancy and compassionate connection and love that's available in life. When the Buddha talked, I'm not the Buddha, Joseph. (laughs) I'll never live that one down (laughs) when he talked about Viria the other night And he talked about the, the, in terms of courage. I think he mentioned Martin Luther King. In terms of the courage, the energy to keep showing up, to really, you know, in the midst.
midst of so much suffering, in the midst of such powerful experience, how does one do it? Yes, there's virya, there's courage, but I also want to put out that the sense of real compassion and the ability to be with difficulty comes from really the deep wisdom that knows that difficulty, fear, pain, loss, violence is part of life. It doesn't mean we like it or we want it. We really can do what we can do to change that, but not out of avoidance. That the ability to really be present, be steadfast, to bear witness in the midst of the most horrific experiences, our own, our others, the world. To me, those are the people that I really find inspire me, that I respect and admire the most. And it starts with ourselves. Can you bear witness? Can you accompany yourself in your own difficulties, in the self-judging, in the idealization, in the trying to be perfect, and just say, no, this is what it is now. I can be with this just as it is. Why? It's not just for ourselves. There's no way it's just for ourselves. Joko Beck says, can we find in ourselves a willingness to rest in the confusion and unpleasantness Why? Because as the Dalai Lama says, why do we endeavor to discover the present moment? Because it's the only place we can know love. Whatever's happening in this present moment, when you can accompany yourself with compassion, with mindfulness, through the fear, the self-hatred, the unpleasantness, the beauty, the change, then you can be there for somebody else. Your friends, your family, whatever situation you might find yourself in, really inspiring people in this world. So we're not doing this just for ourselves. We're doing it for, for everybody. And for me, that really gives a, a greater sense of aspiration and a little more courage. When I'm really fed up with being with this, you know, junk in my mind for myself, really the sense of it isn't just for me. It's for all beings. It gives you more energy to be there, more courage to be there, more compassion to show up. So may we all discover love in this present moment. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.